Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 170. We'll continue in the Psalms with a brief summary of chapters 67 through 70 and follow up with some thoughts about weaponized relics. The poet is in a grateful place in Psalm 67, acknowledging God's grace and generosity on humanity's behalf and thankful for God's justice and bounty. Quote, the earth gives its yield. May God, our God, bless us. This psalm is only eight verses long, but within its concise package, the poet uses the word bless three times, acclaim four times, nations five times, peoples three times, and earth four times. Meaning, it's not a psalm just for the Jewish people, but for everyone. Psalm 68 begins with a call, quote, Let God arise, let his enemies scatter. And when God arises, not only will God's foes be vanquished, but the vulnerable will be protected. Quote, God brings the lonely back to their homes, sets free captives in jubilation. God will also command nature. Quote, the earth shook, the heavens too, poured down before God. Sinai itself before God, God of Israel. A bountiful rain you shed, O God, your estate that had languished you made firm. And though God will also prevail and rule over all other nations, God's eye is singular in its focus, quote, acclaim strength to God over Israel in his pride and his strength in the skies. Awesome, O God, from your sanctuaries. Israel's God, he gives strength and might to his people. Blessed is God. This lengthy psalm is filled with callbacks to earlier poems. Verse 2 is reminiscent of Numbers chapter 10 and the prayer traditional Jews sing as they take the Torah from the ark. Arise, God, and scatter your enemies. Let them flee before you. You can also hear echoes of the song of Devorah, Judges chapter 5, and the song of Moshe from Deuteronomy chapter 33. Psalm 69 shifts in tone to one that is more dire and desperate and evocative. Quote, Rescue me, God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I have sunk in the slime of the deep, and there is no place to stand. I have entered the watery depths, and the current has swept me away. I am exhausted from my calling out. My throat is hoarse. My eyes fall from hoping for my God. And though the poet's enemies are many, the poet is only accountable to God because, quote, you know my folly and my guilt is not hidden from you. And for this reason, the poet begs God to save him and, quote, hide not your face from your servant, for I am in straits. Hurry, answer me. Because more than anyone, quote, it is you who know my reproach and my shame and disgrace before all my foes. And in exchange for a timely rescue, the poet offers up not a near offering, but, quote, let me praise God's name in song and let me extol him in thanksgiving and let it be better to the Lord than oxen, than a horned bull with its hooves. And in the end, the poet wishes, too, that God, quote, will rescue Zion and rebuild the towns of Judea and they will dwell there and possess it and the seed of his servants will inherit it and those who love his name will dwell there. Still on the rescue theme, the poet begins Psalm 70 with a call, quote, Save me, O Lord, to my help hasten. May those who seek my life be shamed and reviled. May they fall back and be disgraced who desire my harm. This intercession, the poet points out, is not just for him in his moment of need, but for everyone as an object lesson. Because if everyone sees how God steps in and saves the faithful, it will encourage them to be faithful too. Quote, let all who seek you exult and rejoice, and may they always say God is great, those who love your rescue. 
And on that edifying note, here endeth the lesson. As I said at the outset of this episode, Psalm 68 begins with a call, quote, Let God arise, let his enemies scatter, and let his foes flee before him. This is a call back to Numbers chapter 10, verse 35, quote, When the ark was to set out, Moses would say, Advance, Adonai, may your enemies be scattered, and may your foes flee before you. When this verse and the next verse appear in the Torah, they are bracketed by inverted nuns, the letter nun, they're flipped over. This has befuddled commentators and scholars for centuries. The rabbis of the Talmud allude to this 85-letter section in Tractate Shabbat, folio pages 115b and 116a as follows. And when the ark traveled, the sages taught, and when the ark traveled and Moses proclaimed dot dot dot, and the Holy One, blessed be he, made signs for this portion, above and below, in order to say that this is not its place. Rabbi says, it is not for that reason, that rather because it is considered a book unto itself. In other words, if you want to know what the minimum unit for Torah is, it's 85 letters, because these two verses represent the basic building block of the text. This 85-letter minimum is taken up in another section of the verbal tradition in Mishnah Yadaim, which comes before the Talmud, where there is a debate about how many letters must be in a scroll in order for the scroll to have the status of a Megillah, that is, a single sheet which is considered sacred text and thus renders the hands impure. I never understood why sacred texts render the hands impure. One would think that something the opposite of sacred would make the hands impure. The rabbis of the Mishnah and subsequently the Talmud just assume this to be the case. They never explain why. There is this theory proposed by Tractate Shabbat 14a, quote, Rav Misharshia said, At first, they would conceal truma foods alongside the Torah scroll, and they said, this is sacred and that is sacred. But they saw that they were coming to ruin. The sages decreed impurity upon it. Okay, there's a little to unpack here. You know, the verbal tradition, Mishnah, particularly Talmud, is very concise, kind of like tweets, where they try to pack everything in. So let's, let's unpack. Rav Misharshia is recounting the practice of the priests in the temple who would receive the truma gift offerings of food from the common folk. And because the truma was considered sacred, they, logically, would store it with other sacred items. Specifically, sacred scrolls. Well, the sacred food attracted less than sacred mice who ate the food and in the process would nibble on the scrolls. So when the rabbis saw this, they declared the sacred scrolls impure so the priests wouldn't store them in a place which might attract rodents. Oh boy! In any event, the litmus test for a scroll that would render the hands impure is, you guessed it, whether it has 85 letters like and when the ark traveled dot dot dot. This scriptural oddity aside, I wanted to focus on the content of this basic building block. It describes, in effect, Moshe entering the launch codes to the biblical equivalent of a nuclear missile. The Ark of the Covenant was a wooden box that would probably take up all the overhead compartment of a Boeing 747 airliner. It was covered in gold and rimmed with a gold molding and rings of gold mounted in each corner for the poles. And then there's the kaporet or the mercy seat, 
which was adorned by uh, two golden cherubim or cruvim or winged humans. So with all of that adornment, it probably would be substantially bigger than the overhead compartment and you'd probably have to check it with the rest of the luggage, but I wouldn't recommend that. And not only because airlines manhandle suitcases. The Ark of the Covenant was also a weapon. I'll let the expert, Professor Jones, explain. Well, the city of Tannis is one of the possible resting places of the Lost Ark. The Lost Ark? Yeah, the Ark of the Covenant, the chest the Hebrews used to carry around the Ten Commandments. What do you mean, what do you mean Ten Commandments? You're talking about the Ten Commandments? Yes, the actual Ten Commandments, the original stone tablets that Moses brought down out of Mount Harab and smashed, if you believe in that sort of thing. Did you guys ever go to Sunday school? Well, I... Oh, look. The Hebrews took the broken pieces and put them in the Ark. When they settled in Canaan, they put the Ark in a place called the Temple of Solomon. In Jerusalem. Where it stayed for many years, until all of a sudden, whoosh, is gone. Where? Well, nobody knows where or when. However, an Egyptian pharaoh... Shishak. Yes, invaded the city of Jerusalem around about 980 BC, and he may have taken the Ark back to the city of Tanis and hidden it in a secret chamber called the Well of Souls. Secret chamber. However, about a year after the pharaoh had returned to Egypt, the city of Tanis was consumed by the desert in a sandstorm which lasted a whole year, wiped clean by the wrath of God. What Professors Jones and Brody didn't allude to is something we discussed at some length in episode 63 when the Ark was deployed badly in the Battle of Eben Ezer by the Israelites against the Philistines and fell into the pagans' hands. After causing mayhem in the various city-states over a period of seven months, which included the self-toppling of temple idols and a plague of rats or mice and hemorrhoids, the Ark was put on a wagon and yoked to two cows who were left to wander away into the land of the Israelites. The cows eventually arrived in the field of Yehoshua Bet Hashimshi, where the Levites were summoned to take possession of the Ark, but not before, quote, the Lord struck at the men of Bet Shemesh because they looked into the Ark of the Lord. He struck down 70 men among the people and 50,000 men. The people mourned, for he had inflicted a great slaughter upon the population. Oh, damn! This happened again on a smaller scale in 2 Samuel chapter 6 when the ark was being relocated from Kiryat Yarim to Jerusalem. Quote, then David and all the troops that were with him set out from Baalim of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God to which the name was attached, the name Lord of hosts enthroned on the cherubim. They loaded the ark of God onto a new cart and conveyed it from the house of Avinadav, which was on the hill, and Avinadav's sons, Uzzah and Achio, guided the new cart. They conveyed it from Avinadav's house on the hill alongside the Ark of God, and Achio walking in front of the Ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel danced before the Lord to the sound of all kinds of cypress wood instruments with lyres, harps, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nachon, Uzzah reached out before the Ark of God and grasped it, for the oxen had stumbled. The Lord was incensed at Uzzah, and God struck him down on the spot for his indiscretion, and he died there beside the Ark of God. Now, if you recall earlier in the book of Joshua, before the conquest of Canaan, the Ark was involved in the siege of Jericho. It was at the vanguard, carried round the city once a day for six days, preceded by the armed men and seven priests blowing seven shofars. Did the ark magnify the vibrations of the shofar and pulverize Jericho's famous walls?
So it is no wonder in the universe of Indiana Jones that the Nazis wanted the Ark to lead them into battle. Imagine a box that brings death to the person that touches it, or kills tens of thousands in the immediate vicinity if opened. But in our universe, when we take the Torah out of the Ark on Shabbat to read from it, we sound like Conan the Barbarian talking about what is good in life. You crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and they hear the lamentation of the women. Which begs the question, how is this death machine regarded as a sacred object? In Solomon's temple, the Ark was secluded in the Holy of Holies, a space only to be entered by the high priest on the holiest of days. Now take a moment to think of all the other religions in the world. Actually, let's just start with Judaism's sibling religions. Do they have sacred artifacts that kill anyone that comes in contact with it? Now Christianity has relics. The wood from the true cross, bones from various saints, the shroud of Turin, which is a length of linen cloth bearing the negative image of Jesus. Allegedly. And whether you believe that the humerus in the display case before you belongs to St. Francis Xavier, touching it will not kill you. In Islam, the Kaaba sits at the center of the great mosque of Mecca. The cuboid stone structure is made of granite but covered by a kiswa, an embroidered covering of black silk and gold curtain, which is replaced annually during the Hajj pilgrimage. The Kaaba is Islam's holiest site, and the faithful circumambulate seven times around it in a counterclockwise rotation during the Hajj. Even so, coming into contact with the Kaaba will not result in your death. The same applies to the more than 600 Muslim relics ensconced in the privy chamber of the Topkapi Palace Museum in Istanbul, or the Palidanta Datuya, the Tooth of the Buddha, in Sri Lanka, or the body of Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov, whose body lies in state in Lenin's mausoleum in Red Square. No other relic has the body count of the Ark of the Covenant, nor does any other relic claim to contain the power to level mountains which prompted quack researchers like Erich von Daniken to suggest that the Ark of the Covenant, unlike the head of St. Thomas Aquinas, was an alien communication device. But others, including reputable academics, have suggested from a close reading of the Ark's assembly instructions in Exodus that it's a biblical version of an 18th century Leyden jar, or Leyden jar, I think Leyden jar, a primitive electrical component that could store a high-voltage electrical charge from an external source between electrical conductors on the inside and outside of the glass jar, except that in the case of the Ark, they used acacia wood instead of glass. According to an article that appeared in the March 5, 1933 edition of the Chicago Daily Tribune, Frederick Rogers, the dean of the Department of Engineering at the Lewis Institute of Technology, concluded that the Ark was a perfectly constructed simple electric condenser. I would like to think that it's not that arc, the WMD or primitive condenser, that we've reconstructed in our synagogues as a small closet in which we store our Torahs. Even though when we take the Torah out, we still sing when the ark was to set out, Moses would say, advance Adonai, may your enemies be scattered and may your foes flee before you. I guess we just like to keep it real, but I would also like to think that the ark is a symbol of a special space where we keep our most special scroll away from the mice. And coming into close contact with it does not result in death, but in the words of a song we sing when we return the Torah to the Ark. It is a tree of life to those who hold fast to it, and all who cling to it find happiness. 
Its ways are ways of pleasantness, and all its paths are peace. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently, it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 171, when we continue in Psalms with chapters 71 through 74.